Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Alex. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, this is my back. My, this is my first time uh, recording in probably like two weeks, so uh, I'm kind of warmed up. I just dropped my kid off at work, uh, got me some Gatorade in hand, got my baseball cap on, uh, ready for some meaningful conversation. So I, uh, I hope you are as well. Um, Alex, before we dive into whatever topic or, or, or opinion, bold idea, big opinion you bring to us today, before we dive into that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Alex Perez. Uh, go by Alexis on a lot of my signed documents, emails. Uh, I've been in philanthropy now for about 20 years. I started when I was in college as a phone-a-thon caller, 
So we, I did that for probably two years while I was at the campus. Uh, I was one of those callers who had a very low turnover rate on my calls, but I had a very high dollar return. Um, I believed in having conversations with the people we were talking to on the phone. We had competitions in our uh, room. There was another guy who had high call volume and high dollars, and I was like low call volume, high dollars. So two different philosophies there, but I think, and we were always competing for the top spot every night to uh, connect with donors. The And I think I was probably one of the only people who actually transferred a call to a major donor from that program, where we had a conversation with somebody who wanted to do something bigger and ended up handing that off to a science program. After that, like my the hook was sunk and I <laughs> stayed in development. So when I graduated, I ended up working for the college, but in the advancement services area. Yeah. So I ended up taking over sort of the back end, did a lot of uh, managing the accounts, uh, working on receipts, working on metrics and reporting. My strategy discussions are always from the backside, sort of providing the data and input and research, and then listening to the fundraisers talk about strategy. It wasn't until, so I did that job for 14 years. Then I ended up running the foundation for community medical centers. So I went into healthcare for four years where I was managing a team of development officers and meeting with prospects on my own. I got a whole different take on fundraising as I move forward. And now I run the um, foundation for West Hills Community College, a small rural community college district, the Central Valley. Yeah. Uh, now I say small, it's small in the number of students that we help, but at the area, I cover a 3,400 square mile range. Um, and I visit, I drive through that whole area and visit donors outside of that. So I'm pretty much driving anywhere from uh, Madera all the way down south to Bakersfield. Pretty much all central California is where I'm traveling. Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me make sure I got the geography right. Cause my, uh, my grandparents, uh, retired in of all places. And a lot of people don't know, know where Bakersfield is. They certainly don't know where Oildale is, which is a little town that just sits right on top of Bakersfield. So where are you? And then I've got an aunt and uncle that lived up, I think up in Visalia. So I'm guessing that whole region there, sort of the anonymous region in the state of California between the Bay area and Los Angeles is, is essentially what we're talking about, right? Correct. Yes. Uh, I live in Fresno, but my office is in Kalinga. I have about an hour and 20 minute drive every day. That's, and I, that's where I started listening to your podcast. <laughs> I had to fill a lot of time. And I read your book and I found your podcast through that. I was, I was like, oh, great. Something I can listen to on my drive to work that actually feels like I'm getting engaged and ready for work. Yeah, I've got a, you would appreciate this. So I've got this short story in my head. I call it the last trip to Bakersfield <laughs> because it's, it's, again, like, it's slightly depressing, but it's somewhat, it's, it, it's probably somewhat of a humorous story to, to think about. So when I went out, my grandfather had died three or four months earlier and I flew out to Bakersfield and I'd gone as a child to Bakersfield my entire childhood. Right. But a lot of people just don't fly into and go to Bakersfield. Um, and so. And that's a part of the country and certainly a part of the state of California when people think California. Um, so so I, I'm interested to know before we dive into our top, what does fundraising look like in that region? I mean, there's got to be wealth in a place like Bakersfield or Fresno. Um, what's it rooted in? Is is there would, – would we say that there's old money in a place like Bakersfield, for example? Yeah, there's – I think there's a lot of – old money that's been passed down from generation to generation. Yeah. And pretty much, but it's the same philanthropist. So a lot of us know the same donors in the area. Yeah. Um, the other thing is it's very, there's a lot of philanthropy that is um, sort of industry based. So there's a lot of agriculture uh, in yeah. this area. So it's all a lot of the major farmers. There's a lot of corporate 
companies that are out here doing processing, manufacturing, but their headquarters might be back east. So you're working with sort of the local representative um, and then occasionally trying to work your way up to a point where you have to get to travel to somebody higher up to make a, a major gift proposal. But for a small institution like me, I'm doing all that now through Zoom. <laughs> just yeah. travel is just expensive. Yeah. Uh, where before I was doing a lot of that on the phone. Then we have, there's a lot of oil uh, money in the southern part of the district. So if I go down to Bakersfield and everything, there's a lot of oil industry out right, there. Right, right. Yeah. And and and, uh, and and I'm guessing you don't include sort of the coastal region, which is when we were distinguishing between the valley and what's on the other side of the mountains or the small mountain ranges. So we're not talking about Monterey and the other coastal areas. Am I right? No, you do have donors. So a lot of people that, that have made money in the valley and still have business here or have roots here, uh-huh. they retire over to the coast. So okay. I do have donors out on the coast that I have to go visit, um, but they started here in the in the community or have industry that they still own here. They just retired and own a property now, like in Carmel yep. or Monterey yep. or uh, Pismo. Pismo, like yeah. They're out there. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so my mother was from Southern California, grew up in Anaheim. Um, and uh, like, you know, like I said, my grandparents, my dad, my grandpa was a cheap, cheap, cheap uh, <laughs> Uh, he, he liked things cheap, right? He bought old used cars. He probably instilled. He liked cheap hamburgers, and he liked Bakersfield because he could get a cheap uh, mobile home, put it on a small little uh, nine nine you know par nine golf course, and so forth and so forth. Um, I'm totally I'm I'm totally sure you get what I'm talking about, um, mm-hmm. Alex. We ask our guests to come in with a big idea, bold opinion, and uh, you've been around in fundraising for two decades, like I have. So I'm sure you've got a couple of those. What do you got for us today? So one of the big things that I've been thinking about lately, um, mostly because I'm working through this with my board and uh, some of my volunteers, is goal setting for the new year. So, and I think a lot of organizations uh, are not doing goal setting properly, both for their their own organization and for their way they work with their teams. Yeah. And mostly what I'm talking about there is for us as a small organization, we've been growing our fundraising since I came here. We started at about 400, 450,000 is what their goal was when I got here. We're now making over a million, but this next year, I think we're going to, because of the groundwork we've been laying over the last year, building relationships with some key uh, individuals and organizations here in the region, I think we really are going to probably set it much higher, like closer to one and a half, two million, maybe even three is our stretch. But that's but the way I think about that, I'm trying to explain to my board is that this is not an ever growing number. We're just at that point right now when I look at the relationships we've built and the gifts that we are working on in the pipeline, that we're going to have a few years here of some really high numbers. But we have to realize that there's going to be periods too where we're going to go back down. We're going to be in that relationship building phase again, just because we have to engage new people as we move forward. So it's not always a steady growth number. It's an up and down. You need to look at your, the health of your portfolio and the relationships you're building in order to get to a reason, a realistic goal and a realistic stretch goal for your organization. Are you, t- are you thinking about, um, <clears throat> I just had this conversation with a client last week, uh, cause we're, we're in the midst of it. They're in the midst of a capital campaign. And I said, uh, I said, his name's Tim. I said, Tim, I said, historically, most capital campaigns have been approached through a 20th century sort of strategic planning lens, which is generally very linear, uh, you know, you sort of forecast your goals, you predict, you predict them, and then you control the environment to to sort of achieve that. And I said, I said, Tim, I think we're sort of moving into sort of this. If you think about what 
Alex, what your career and my career have sort of experienced, the unpredictability and the complexity of our world just since the turn of the century with the Internet and September 11th and the recession and now COVID-19. I think we're entering into sort of like a scenario planning type context where we're perhaps and maybe that's sort of in between the lines of what you're talking about. You know, we're sort of forecasting multiple possibilities. Does that make sense? Yes, I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is that these are not transactional uh, gifts, yeah. relationship gifts. And we need to think about the time span it takes to build out some of these larger gifts. As So that's the part that I'm trying to get my board to is these, you can't just say, oh, we're going to create another $2 million of income if we don't aren't building those relationships for those gifts as they go down the road. Do you, do you think boards are actually, okay, so on that point, do you think uh, in the book project that I'm working on right now, a lot of you have heard me talking about this, but I'm, I'm talking about the difference between sort of a, a, an economy that's sort of driven by commodities versus one that's driven by gifts. And, 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 and uh, an economy that's driven in a, in a gift economy can, can, can perhaps anticipate and forecast the, um, that $2 million gift opportunity, for example, from a donor, but there's not nearly as there's no, there's not, there's not near as much predictability to it. So do you think boards are getting to the place where when a guy like you steps, steps in there and says, we're going to start forecasting things, they can sort of lean into the possibility that that, or the, or the, the high likelihood that the gift's actually going to be there, but the, un, the inability to, to necessarily predict exactly when it's going to happen. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And I think that's the hard part. You can't, there's no, (laughs) we're dealing with individuals and building relationships. Yeah. You can't say on a deadline, this is going to happen by October uh, 2024. Yeah. Because you're building a relationship and a lot of things happen with people and individuals when they're making a gift, things might happen with business, things might happen with the economy. We have the drought in California right now, which is making a big impact on sort of what people's, especially in the ag industry, what people are capable of giving, or even if they're in a space to give right now, it doesn't mean that those relationships aren't still strong. Just means that we're not at a place where they and their businesses are capable or interested in making a gift because they're they're dealing with the uncertainty of whether their business is going to be around in the next year or two, right? So it it adjusts your goal, and you can't predict those kind of things that are going to happen. I mean, I couldn't predict that COVID nineteen was going to happen. Right. That, that all that changes your ability to set your goals. So you have to have realistic expectations about managing your regular steady income, so your annual giving income and your uh, program income and everything for your nonprofit. That, those are steady streams Yeah, as long as you're doing that. But then the major giving part is an up and down uh, moving target because people's lives are always changing. The industry, the economy is always changing. You can set a target, but you have to be realistic about what's really possible or where you are with a donor right now. Okay. So I tend to think that the boards get this. I tend to think that the, the, the men and women that are sitting around the board tables actually get this because a lot of times they don't work in our context. They work in theirs and the, the mm-hmm. private sector, you know, they work in the private sector. The private sector is having to adapt to an increasingly com- complex and unpredictable world as, as much as we are. So, sometimes I wonder if, if, if getting these goals right, or, or in many cases getting them wrong is more on our side of the table and just developing a certain level of confidence to sort of speak up and articulate this is how this is going to work on, from, from sort of your vantage point. Is that perhaps part of the problem is that we don't have the confidence to sort of assert to that, this, to this, this, you know, governing body that you're working with, that this is how this is going to work. I think it depends. Uh-huh. So when you come into a nonprofit, you, you always inherit the board of the person that preceded you. Yeah. 
depends on the education that that person has and the conversations they've had with those board members where they are. Yeah. So I would say some of the organizations that I've worked for or worked with also um, in the area, the board expects a continuing growth in fundraising, which is fine on a, if you're focusing on an annual fund and program income, but they don't understand sort of the ups and downs of major giving. So a lot of times I, I walked in, well, when I walked into this organization, we had the same philosophy that it would be an upward sort of uh, trend. And it's just requiring that conversation with your board about the realistics of how fundraising really works and that we're a relationship-based, well, I'm a relationship-based fundraiser, not a transactional fundraiser. Yeah. Um, and that that means that we're building long-term relationships for the health of the organization. These are people that I want to have engaged for, say, 5, 10 years, 20 years, their whole lifetime if we can. I'm not so interested in trying to hit the target number so much as I want these people invested in the health of the organization and our mission and being involved with what we're doing. So are we, I, I, I haven't quite, I, I've, I've said this a couple of times here on the podcast, but, and, and I haven't, and I haven't sort of, I haven't beat around the bush on it, but I, I think our I think our annual rhythm of sort of this uh, this analysis of renewal rates, for example, is problematic, and 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 is 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 driving our attention to some of the wrong things. And I think when we because because I think if we I think if you think about it, Alex, you think about what you're trying to articulate to this board that the more meaningful these relationships come, the more rooted they become, the more rooted these gifts are as an expression of the relationship, the less likely they're going to work on this predictable 12 month cycle, for example. And so I, I think part of my concern with the, Oh gosh, the, it's called the fundraising effectiveness project, the fundraising effective effectiveness project that all these sort of these big powers that be in our sector, they're driving all of our attention to the renewal rates. And they're telling us that 50% of our donors aren't renewing. Well, the 50% of the donors that are not renewing are the people that my guess is that are, that are very much rooted in these transactional relationships that you're basically mm-hmm. saying we don't need to be, you know, overly concerned about to begin with. You see what I'm saying? And, yes. and so the more, the more these, the more money we're raising that's reflective of a more meaningful relationship, the less likely that, that sort of metric, that quantitative metric is going to work. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially when you think about these relationships, at least the way I do, is that some of these people, they're going to give at certain times when they're ready. But that that may not be on an annual schedule. That might be every three years. Um, they also, if you build a relationship, then they might get to a point where they put you in the state. So now you have, that's a whole different level of giving, but that's a lifetime commitment to your organization. And ideally, that's what I'd like to build to. So I'm not, I'm not worried about whether they're going to give a million dollars now or a million dollars in two years from now. I just want them to understand our mission and be tied up to attend what we're doing, pay attention to what's happening on the campus. Uh, I'm always sharing students' stories. I, I want them to feel like they're part of our community and they're engaged in their success. Like the success of our students is, is something that they should celebrate. The gifts will come if you're doing the good work in the relationship building, is I guess my philosophy. Do the work, build a relationship, invest in the mission. The gift will come when it needs to, but you can't push that. And, and you can try to estimate it, which is part of the goal setting, is really just to estimate are these people going to make a gift or where am I in this relationship? Are we already in a gift discussion or really just like nuancing details? But beyond that, I I just try to get my board to think that way too. Don't think that these people are going to give on a set schedule because that's not, it's not about the gift. It's about the relationship. The gift will come if we have the relationship in place. 
Is part of the is part of the problem. So, so I, I'm I'm sitting here thinking about Alex's meeting with that board. You're having this conversation, intertwined in, inter sort of in between the line, sort of the elephant in the room. I think that happens in some of these conversations is that some of these board members who are not experienced, not familiar with, we'll call them perhaps somewhat naive on how fundraising really works. It's as if they think that we've got some sort of magic potion or something, <laughs> you know, because the way that the, the way that that I, I can see, I can see in that board meeting, like you're having that discussion and probably, you know, 80 percent of our listeners have been in that same board meeting. They've had that same discussion and half of the board members, it sort of clicks that you can't sort of control the the process, but it's like there is a couple of board members that almost seem like they think that we've got some sort of magic powers, some wizard wizardry powers that can sort of in some way or another persuade this donor to give according to some sort of uh, schedule. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I know exactly what you're saying. And I, as I continue to say in a lot of meetings with people is that donors give on their own schedule. They don't give on your schedule. Yes, and, absolutely. And, they get to a point where they're ready to give. My job is just to help them through that journey, engage them with the mission, share the importance of what we're doing. They're got, they have decisions they have to make about their business and their life um, and whether they want to invest these assets in your mission. But I can't push them through that. They have to get to that point on them by themselves. So by the time we're kind of on that timeline, I already, we are both, at least me and the donor, are both on the same page that they, they are passionate about what we're doing. Yeah. They do want to do something to help. They're just trying to get to a point where they feel that they're whatever they have to overcome for themselves is they have to get to that yes on their own. And especially in the relationship building, they're they're engaged with us, but I, I don't want to push them to that. I want them to come to it on their own that this is yes, this is the time. This project, whatever it is, is this is my passion. This project needs my help. This is when I need to be involved. Is it the, They'll come to that on the right time. Is it is it the inability to understand that you've got to align these two? I, I oftentimes say to clients that you've got to align these sort of sort of well, you've got this you've got the sort of the planning the the planning side of any sort of effort that you're doing, and then you've got the how you're going to pay for the plan, and mm -hmm. you're basically talking about timelines. And I'm thinking about what you've shared thus far, and I almost wonder if. So, so there's there's been some steady brewing of sort of resentment towards affluent donors who don't sort of step up to the plate. You know, basically they don't step up to the plate. My argument is consistently they're really just not stepping up to the plate in accordance with our timeline. I, I oftentimes say, you know, if you can just get out of the twelve month timeline with a donor, your twelve month timeline, and give it another six months, you'd be you'd be miraculously surprised how how much more generous these people happen to be. But is is some of the resentment that we on the fundraising side, on the receiving side, sometimes experience as it relates to the donor, rooted in that inability to sort of understand that messy timeline that, quite frankly, all of us live on. I mean, just because you happen to be super wealthy, and I happen to be the guy who lives in. You know, suburban middle class guy doesn't really necessarily make me any differently sort of living in sort of just this economic world that's not all you know perfectly linear and forecastable am i right i think that's true i think we get frustrated or at least i do knowing that i have a goal to meet and the timeline that has to be met it's the pressure that i feel to meet that goal versus yeah. versus trying to balance the know that the donor's 
they're on their own schedule again. But they they don't feel that pressure that I feel, and I need to remind myself to not do anything <laughs> to, to put translate any of that pressure into resentment or anything that might be pressure on them while they're exploring. Like I said, making this journey to the gift. I gotta I gotta stay where I'm at. <laughs> that pressure is all on me, and it's my own internal pressure. Yeah, but I think of that as the same way. I do for a lot of the goals that we have, like my own personal goals, even in like exercise or whatever. I set a personal goal for myself, but my body is going to do what it's going to do. I'm not going to reach that goal, <laughs> right? Until it's it's done. It's, Until it's ready it has to do the it. Yeah. Place, and I've done the training. It's like, I can't, it doesn't matter how I feel. I can't work out harder to get myself to where I need to be if I'm, if it's going to injure me or whatever. Okay. So, so I think the donor is the way, donor relationships the same way. You can't put pressure on them. Yeah, you're right. And, and you just used a beautiful phrase, and I've never, I don't think I've ever used that. I might hijack that phrase and, and stick it somewhere. The, <laughs> the, the idea of that journey to the gift. So I had another client last week. I was on site with two clients last week. So all these these ideas are fresh in my mind. So he asked me that the, he's, we're trying to close a quarter million dollar gift. Mm-hmm. And we have met with this donor numerous, numerous times. And, and, and my, my client is frustrated that this, you know, that the $250,000 or the first payment towards this particular pledge isn't being paid. And, and, I, and a lot of the conversation that I shared with my client, essentially, you could summarize it, you could sum it up in the notion of the journey of the gift. I said, you know, you, you're just, you're just sort of waiting right now. You've had all the conversations you could possibly have. And one of the things I said to him, I said, we can't go out to his office again. We can't. <laughs> you j- it's At some point, you just almost have to leave these people alone. I mean, sometimes it's like that white space in relationships. You know, we talk about white space in marketing and design and that sort of stuff. I mean, is part of is part of what we learn in goal setting and part of getting on the right timeline, learning how to put sort of this white space in these relationships and not feel like we've got to constantly sort of be pushing something forward. Um, I know, I know in my own experience with major donors, I mean, you can, it, it, it's fair to say you can sit for six months, six months, not have a whole lot of engagement post the solicitation and the gift is perfectly fine. It will show up. You follow me? Yes. Oh no, I do. And that, I, that was probably the hardest thing for me to learn in the transition sort of from the back end shop to front end fundraising. Yeah. Was that patience you have to have? Yes, yes. <laughs> you, you have to you have to give them space to get there on their own. You can't. There's nothing to do to move that forward. There's nothing action you should take. It, if you've done the ask right and you've and you've answered all their questions, you've overcome all of their concerns. You have to give them space to kind of digest and get to that decision on their own. And that that I think was the hardest thing to learn in that transition. Just patience, like you said, white space. Give them give them room to get there. They'll get there, right, with an answer, either yes or no. But give them time to think and kind of process and get it. And the larger the gift, the more time you need to kind of give in that space. That So I would say the difference between sort of a, a million-dollar gift and a $20 million gift is years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but so. it's also, isn't that white space, um, isn't that white space some of what, Again, I'm thinking about my research that I'm doing right now between commodity, you know, an economy that's based on commodities versus one that's based on gifts. And a, a gift economy is rooted in community. And so part of what I said to my client, I said, you know, you're going to have to part of creating that white space is also knowing that there are ways to interact and have this person be integrated into your community. And it's a private school uh-huh. community. So this this gentleman is no doubt integrated by the nature of the relationship with their with the gentleman's children. But in some ways, 
we have to have ways to integrate these people into the life of our organizations that don't necessitate every time we're getting together with them asking for money. And mm-hmm. sometimes that we're talking about the, the, the in, interaction that's happening. I don't think I've ever had this conversation, Alex. We're ta- in some cases, we're talking about the space that happens subsequent to the solicitation, but prior to the actual receipt of the gift. Sometimes that's where, where just having very natural, organic community where your people, where your donors are integrated into the organization in meaningful ways becomes critically important. Am I right? Oh, yeah. I, I think that that white space doesn't mean that you're not still keeping them engaged with the mission. Yeah, so you can exactly. With them that are going on with students. Uh, I, what I love to do is keep them engaged with any leadership changes or, or changes for the people that they've been working with. I always try to have somebody from the organization who's a like subject matter expert on whatever the topic is. And if that change turns over, first thing I want to do is have the, the potential donor introduced to the new uh, subject matter expert. We have some people that are really engaged with our biology program. If our biology professor changes, the first thing I'm going to do is be setting up meetings to, for us to just get together and to hear your thoughts and the, uh, vision for the new biology professor keep them engaged and keep them on the success when we graduate every semester there are students in certain programs that just got uh, graduated i want to share those success stories with them i want to bring them to the graduation the scholarship event i want to get them well pre-covid i wanted to get them on the campus but now uh, i do want to share with them those stories wherever possible of what what we're doing in the areas that they're passionate about so we've, we've sort of been talking thus far, so, sort of as this conversation sort of turns, can we talk about goal? I, and here's the interesting thing, Alex. I don't know that the word goal, I, I always think about this when, I, when I'm recording these conversations, what the title of these conversations are going to be. I don't know that the word goal setting has appeared much in our titles. So this is a very valid and timely sort of conversation. But how are you relating sort of what you're thinking as it relates to the board to those who like I, I, I remind, refresh my memory in terms of your your staffing structure, but the you know the the if you're in a if you're in an organizational setting where you've got a team of development officers, how are you sort of synchronizing your thinking between what's at the board level to what's uh, you know interact what the what the goal setting is with the gift officer that's on the front line with the donor next week? So we're a very small organization. So it's just me. I'm the executive director and the primary fundraiser. So you're doing it all, okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing it all. So, so, so let's pretend that. like let's pretend like you're giving some advice. So you're, let's let's put you in the consulting seat, and I've got <laughs> five develop. So I'm 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 asking some of the same questions that you're posing answers for. I've got four development officers that report to me. So what are you saying to me as as it relates to all this goal setting? As it relates to those four development officers. So I had the same philosophy when I was at Community. I had five development frontline development officers. Yeah, okay. We had the same conversations and the same concerns that they, you know, I have my own, each fundraiser had a goal and they're trying to make those dollar values. But I, as I told them, like the, the key for us is the journey uh, of the gift, right? So don't, don't, if, if you've made the ask and you're giving time, don't try to pressure the donor just because I know your, your goal at the end of this fiscal year is to reach a million dollars. And we'll have that discussion based on sort of where you are when you get to it. But I'm not going to, I don't want to make you rush out to try to get gifts to reach a million, reach a million dollar goal. It's more important for you to build that relationship and keep, keep us going in the right direction. So don't pressure donors. We will get to that target number however we can. We have a certain amount of income. I know based on our annual fund and everything, this is the base number that we're going to bring in, which covers our programs and everything that we're doing. The major gifts are going to take time. 
So don't do the same thing I would do, which is just do good work, do build a relationship. The gift will come when it comes, but we don't want to be rushing those transactions. Where have you learned all this? Because there's a, there's a tone, <laughs> there's a tone in between. So I, 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 this, 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 this episode here is probably creeping up on 300 conversations and there's a tone and an awareness. And as I'm listening to you, there's a sensitivity to the unpredictable nature of the work that we do. And there, but, but there's also not a, um, I, I push back on all of my guests to come on here and talk about fundraising is like sales. I'm not hearing a sales guy here in my conversation with you. No. And I think that my view of fundraising and sales. So I recently completed my MBA program a couple of years ago, uh-huh. maybe it's three years now. Yeah. But I think sitting in those MBA courses and learning about how businesses operate, how they target KPIs, how they uh, manage sales teams, that that crystallized my view of how different the work that we do on a daily basis is from business. Well, that's interesting. Yes, we're both in building relationships, right? Sure. And I think the closest thing I could say, it's not sales, it's closer to business development. We're building partnerships and relationships with, with donors and organizations that are going to last and investments for both of us. So I, would, I, I don't really compare fundraising anymore to sales. I think of it, the closer uh, business equivalent is business development, right? Yeah. That or brand management would also be something that I think we're much closer to. We we're we have an, a mission and a vision for our organization, and we are managing that by building relationships with people in the community that have the ability to make a difference in what we are able to do or expand that reach of that mission and vision. Is there anything you learned in that MBA program that that uh, fundraising hasn't figured out? Do you recall anything that like, because I remember thinking about that in some of my, uh, so I took some urban ed classes after graduate school. I took some sort of post-grad classes and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and some of the things that I picked up uh, ironically, I mean, strangely in, in something in, in a place like urban education, I picked up on things that I sort of, it's, it's this idea of sort of an interdisciplinary sort of approach. We had a guy in Canada on here, I don't know, six months ago, talking about sort of an interdisciplinary sort of approach. It's not rooted in just like PR and marketing. Anything you picked up in that MBA program that was particularly like, like, why haven't we thought about it that way before? Um, probably. Okay. So that, this is going to take me a little bit away from the relationship set. Yeah. But the, the use of KPIs and the way that management should be done around metrics. I, I think we as fundraisers are doing that wrong as well. So you shouldn't manage two metrics. You should use mat- metrics to identify areas of problems where their management is required. And the way that the way that I think about this is, so if I was a business owner yeah. and I was looking at my numbers and I saw that my sales were down 20%, I would go into my KPI, other areas of business, and try to figure out where that problem is. I wouldn't say, oh, well, that business isn't, we're done. That's a failure on our part. That's, it's not a, metrics shouldn't be like a, a make or break for somebody. What it helps you to do is identify areas where there's a problem that you can go in and actually manage. So for instance, I'm a fundraiser and for whatever reason, between month to month, the number of visits I do drops. That isn't like, oh, you're failing to meet your visits. That as a manager of other fundraisers should be, what's going on here? Why are we, why are our visits dropping? Is it, are we not making connections? Do we not have somebody, we run out of people that we're meeting to talk to? Is there something else going on? Do we need an advocate to step in there and help you? to make those connections or open the door. Like I'm not going to fault you for not making a metric, but I'm going to use that as a manager to say, this is a problem area that we together need to solve. 
Yeah. So I was sitting in a, uh, I tell this story a lot. So I was sitting in a, um, I was working with a client, Houston, Texas, sitting in a suburban barbecue shop one night and reading uh, a book about systems. And that's kind of like along the lines of what you're, go- where you're going there. Mm-hmm. Um, it basically sort of enlightened me that fundraising is often, we talk about KPIs and we talk about goals, we're oftentimes so oriented towards the outputs that we don't know how to measure when it comes to the, a lot of the indicators that I'm encouraging our clients to measure, I'm encouraging them to measure the inputs because the inputs are the things that they can actually control. You can't actually make Mrs. Smith write a check, right? You know, you can say we want to raise a million dollars and you can, and you know, Mrs. Smith is ultimately going to perhaps write one of those checks that gets you there. But ultimately the variable that can actually be controlled is perhaps the question of, you know, it's more of the process-oriented sort of metrics that says, okay, do I have the right Mrs. Smith on my list? And I, and I think there's so many different metrics that are sort of, uh, you know, early on when we launched the podcast and shortly after the first book came out, I, I started sort of getting 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 my head wrapped around this notion of sort of this culture of metrics that was just wearing people down, something I didn't even address in that first book. But it's it's oftentimes just this overwhelming emphasis on variables that ultimately you just can't control. I can't control the fact that Mrs. Smith, you know, whether or not a development officer gets to the table frequently enough with the right Mrs. Smith and 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 routinely asks for the right gift that aligns with her inclinations and so forth and so forth is one thing that can be measured but ultimately I can't jump across the table and and, and force Mrs. Smith to write that check right. and and I think that's what our metrics I think that's what our metrics culture is sort of missing is that we're evaluating all these outputs we like to be output oriented we like to be you know outcomes this outcomes that well fundraising from a fundraiser standpoint from a managerial standpoint it's all about the process right yes and i think i think you're right we going back to something you said earlier i think we need to a goal setting is really our own estimation of where we are and what we're able to bring in yeah and i would like to think of goals that we, whenever we set goal setting, that we need to have a period afterwards of reassess sort of where we really are and have that conversation with my board. This is what I thought we brought in. This is what we actually brought in. And if it's really, if it's much higher, then that's also sort of failure on my part. We need to talk about, I, don't, I mean, we can we'll celebrate it, but then I need to reassess my own estimation. How, if I estimated we brought in a million and we brought in four million, where was I off? Was I, did I underestimate something? Did I, was I off on some of these relationships? It, it's still a failure on my goal setting part to to and my estimations for where this our nonprofit is, even when I way overshoot my goal. Because I should have been I should have been somewhere between my main goal and my stretch goal, <laughs> I think, for our fundraising. But if I overshot that by that much, that means that I I underestimated where we are with those relationships instead of overestimating. It, it's still and I still want to have that discussion with my board, like, okay, so I made a mistake here. Let's talk about <laughs> where we are with some of these relationships. So are you teaching that board, the, the board that, so I, I had this meeting yesterday with the, with the second client I was working with this last week. And I said to this board, I said, talking about process oriented things, and they're very much oriented towards the five or $6 million for the next phase in their growth that they've got to raise. And I said, look, if we're not having five to six, in addition to the ongoing conversations that we're already having with a lot of the donors we've identified, 
Mm -hmm. I said, if we're not adding five, if we're not on average, they wanted to know sort of what that key indicator was, that first KPI, right? I said, if we're not averaging on average five to six new conversations in addition to the conversations we're already having steadily every month, you can pretty much assume this thing's not going anywhere, going to get anywhere where you want it to be. And what I'm trying to do there, and perhaps this is some of what you're trying to do with that board Part of what I'm trying to teach them is a sort of to develop this intuitive sense of if you're not putting the inputs in, you're never going to get to the outputs. And I don't know, and I don't know that these boards, and I and I don't know that fundraisers any better. I don't know that boards and fundraisers and necessarily executive directors, any of them have necessarily sort of been able to I don't know that they can sort of connect all the dots. I think I think you're right. And I think I think all of us, if you're running a nonprofit or involved in uh, a board on a nonprofit, is to take a step back and look at what is the what is the target or what's the thing that's really going to make move us forward and make us grow. Yeah, it, it, not gifts. Maybe it's uh, new uh, conversations, new visits. Yeah. Maybe it's identifying new people we should be talking to. You need to figure out where you're in the health of your organization is. What's that number that's really going to make you grow and engage new people? Yeah. Uh, and and it could be it could be just identifying new people. Like we we've been working with the same donors and the same prospects for years. Oh, that's great. But if you're really going to get to a new level, <laughs> you need to find new people. And what's a reasonable amount of new people to engage with the mission on an annual basis? Looking at our staff and our fundraisers and volunteers, like what's that number that will make this that we can actually manage and make this work? That'll make us grow. Yeah. Or how many of those are we actually converting into gifts? That might be where you're at. We're, yeah, we're engaging new people, but if we're looking at our numbers. We're having all these new visits, but they're not really transferring any of them into kind of any giving. So our, our our target really should be trying to engage, maybe lower the number of new people we're engaging with and raise the number of new gifts that we're getting. Focus on deeper, stronger relationships with a smaller group of people because we're engaging a lot of new people, but we're not really transforming those into long lasting relationships. But I'm so I so I'm, I totally agree with you that it's that's where we need to have those conversations, and that takes a step back from the day to day business, the regular things that we get into with the goal setting to find that number or whatever that KPI that's going to really make a difference for you and your organization. All right. I got to go back to uh, Bakersfield for a minute and, and then I'm going to let you okay. go. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through everything that we sort of just talked about. So if I'm raising money in a place, it's, it's always sort of occurred to me that if we're trying to raise money in that is relation that is rooted in relationships. Is it actually easier to do that in places like Bakersfield rather than go places like San Francisco or Los Angeles, where where the where the relationship? If I fly into Bakersfield next week to solicit a donor, I'm going to probably end up eating at a you know a greasy spoon, and you know the 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 the, the just just the way that money is sort of approached and transacted and all that sort of stuff. Is there a, is there a purity that comes from raising money in per, perhaps harder places like Bakersfield rather than Los Angeles and San Francisco? I think that's kind of what I'm asking. I don't, I, w- I don't know that I, I don't think so. I think it's more about the time that you put in with somebody than it is about where you are. And and I think that's another thing that we as fundraisers don't Maybe it's genuine. So you don't think there's any 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 more genuineness. Bakersfield's a hard town to to to. It's a hard place, and I think I, I've already. I think I've always found, and maybe this is just me reflecting on my experiences, and it's totally. 
I, but I get the privilege of doing this uh, as the host. I've always found that raising money in some of the harder places yields sometimes more meaningful gifts and sometimes more meaningful relationships. Does that make sense? Now that that makes sense. Maybe that's that's probably what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So I think I think that it's in some of these places where there's a lot less wealth. It it the relationships you're building and that really transform your organization. Yeah. They're harder to build. I think the other thing too about these smaller communities is that they're very insular, so it's harder to build those relationships because they're very tight knit communities. So the smaller and the more tight knit the community is, the harder it is to build that initial relationship. But I agree, the more it's more fulfilling. I think both for me and for the donor when we get to that place with somebody from these communities, that's yourself. It's it's interesting you use that word insular because insular is a word that I, as I've been doing this research in gift economies. So I'm I'm starting to realize that when we study indigenous gift economies, you know, if you want to understand the way that gifts play out in our world and anthropologists have been looking at this, it's the same way that the gifts play out in like community in, in hospitals and in Ivy league and in church communities, for example, those tend to be, mm-hmm. and if you think about it, those also tend to be the places that are raising hell of a lot more money than a lot of our human services organizations that struggle just to keep the lights on. But in mm-hmm. some ways that's because they create this sort of clan like community you know, there's a reason why Stanford raises so much money. They are that insular institution. They're not an, you know, they're not, they're, they're in many ways sort of representative of exactly what we're talking about. And there's, there, there is a difficulty of sort of breaking in there. But once you're in there, it's like the economy sort of takes care of it's a, it's a community. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with that. That's, I think that's exactly kind of what, how I think of Bakersfield and some of these small rural communities. They are tight knit families. Yeah. That's, and the health of their community. And if you're an outsider, it, it's really hard to get them to invest that social capital in who you are and what you're bringing to this community to get to the inside of that, where they now you're like a trusted insider and part of that community. But but you see what we just did there, Alex. We also are making a case why the small shop fundraiser, the new guy in town, new gal in town in Bakersfield, needs to know and understand. Because I've been saying this for decades. The, the last two decades I've been teaching this stuff. You've got to know how Stanford raises Stanford raises money. You don't have to have Stanford's donors. You just have to know sort of what the under the way the system actually works. And if you see and understand that, you can essentially use the same underlying logic, let it play out in a place like Bakersfield, and you'll be raising tremendous amounts of money the same way. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with that. And there's a certain degree of patience. Some of the patience that was consistently woven into this conversation you and I just had is the same patience that a, an institution like Stanford, which is just up the road from where you at the region that we're you and I are talking about here. Um, there's a patience that's been embedded and designed into that institution. Stanford's not. Stanford's not sitting there thinking. You, you know, every twelve, they're not thinking about renewal rates. I guarantee right. you they're not they're not losing any sleep over renewal rates, right? <laughs> I think the larger the organization, the more space and uh, assets you have to give you that patience. I really think yes, smaller, that margin. Yeah, yeah, these are the smaller institutions and, and the human health and human services uh, nonprofits. Like you said, they're it's a they're just trying to keep the lights on, and so there's a lot of pressure. These gifts really transform their institution. 
the larger the gift, the more transformative and the more pressure there is to do something about that because it's going to it's going to do something really big for your organization. Yeah. So that pressure, again, this time just from your own internal, like we need this gift to keep the life on. You need to give people that space to still get to their that journey on their gift and not interfere with it, even though now you have just the operating pressures of keeping the lights on to try to make that happen. Alex, it has been a pleasure. We lose our listeners in about 45 minutes, so I'm going to let you go. But if somebody's listening to us today and they want to reach out to you, start a conversation, maybe they're on the West Coast within driving distance of where you're at, or perhaps they're on the East Coast and they just want to talk about goals or something else, how would you Mm -hmm. suggest that they reach out to you? Probably by email, or um, they can also message me on my LinkedIn profile. I do uh, post a lot of stuff on my LinkedIn. So that's probably the best way if you need to. You can find me there. Alex, it has certainly been a pleasure. You are always welcome back, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. This has been, uh, I'm a fan, so it's been exciting to be on the podcast. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.